I'm so excited about what we're talking about today. We actually sang about a little bit of it just a few minutes ago. It's amazing when the worship and the, the content of the message collide like that. It's really, really cool. For some context, though, if you're new, we're doing something this year that's a little bit different, at least different for us. We're going through the entire story of the Bible in one year, something that we call the whole story. And it's okay if you're, you're new. This is not like, oh, I'm behind. I'll have no idea what's going on. This isn't like a TV show. This isn't like Lost back in the day, you know, where if you don't, if you miss the last episode, you have no, you're lost. It's not like that at all. Every series is meant to stand on its own. Every single message is meant to stand on its own. But what we've done is we've taken the whole story of the Bible, we've broken it down into 14 different series. And as we explore these, we, we learn a lot about the two main characters of Scripture. That's God and us. Scripture tells us the story of God and humanity and the lengths that God is willing to go to, to know us, to forgive us, to show us his love, to teach us and even challenge us to be the people that we were created to be. And we learn all these really fascinating things about our God and our own hearts through Scripture. Now, we, we just finished last Sunday our third series that we called The, the Great I Am, where we really learned the character of God and his nature in, in a really amazing way. Today, we're starting a conversation that'll probably be three weeks long called Figuring Out Freedom. Figuring Out Freedom. The, the context here is really simple. The people of Israel in the Old Testament, they're slaves in Egypt for generations. They're not free. And then God takes Moses and he says, Moses, you're gonna lead the people. And Moses is like, no, I'm not. And he's like, no, you are. And Moses goes, no, I'm really not. And he's like, no, you really are. Because you know, God's God. And when God says something's gonna happen, like it's tough to negotiate with God. If you ever find yourself negotiating with God, you'll probably lose because um, he's God. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing for Moses that God doesn't go, oh, okay, good point. No, he says, Moses, you're gonna do this. I'm gonna be with you. You're gonna lead the people out of slavery in Egypt. And it happens in dramatic fashion. There's miracles, God shows his power. It is amazing. And it's so amazing that it's one of those stories that even if you didn't grow up in church, you've probably seen to some degree the story of, of Moses and the parting of the Red Sea. There's been a movie, even like a children's movie that you may have seen that tells that story. But now the people of Israel find themselves in a place they haven't been in for generations. Like no one that's alive that's part of the people of Israel remembers what it's like to be free because they haven't been free for centuries. And freedom is a funny thing. We all want it, but we don't always know what to do with it. It's like when I was a youth pastor and, and I would work with high school students. Oftentimes they would complain because their teachers would give them very specific things that they wanted out of certain assignments. Like, oh, I have this paper to write and the teacher said we have to have like 17 sources and it has to be 20 pages long and it's so frustrating. And then I'd stay close to those students as they go to college. And college professors don't tend to give you that, that same amount of direction. It's just like, just do it. And all the students are like, I'm so frustrated at my professor. They didn't tell me how many sources they want. They didn't tell me how long they want the paper to be. You know, it's like, just tell me what to do. And it's like, welcome to freedom. Freedom is, is something we all crave and desire, but we don't always know what to do with freedom. And to be honest, we're not always good at it. Freedom is messy. Freedom is something that you have to figure out. And the people of Israel don't know how to be free. They're on their way to this place called the promised land, this place that God had promised their ancestor Abraham generations before. And it's only about an 11 day journey from where they, they end up pretty quickly after they escape Egypt to where, they, to where the promised land. It's an 11 day journey, which in, in our world would be like, I mean, the ancient world, 11 days is nothing. That's like us taking an eight hour drive somewhere. Like it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of a drive but it's not that bad. That's what an 11 day journey would have been in the ancient world, but it actually takes them 40 years 
to take the promised land. It's an 11-day journey for their feet. It's a 40-year journey for their minds and for their hearts to learn how to be a free people. They've gotta figure out freedom, and so do we. So do we. Because yes, we're free as a nation, but Jesus has set us free from sin, from death, from legalistic religion. Galatians chapter five, verse one says, Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. And we can also say, don't get tied up again in slavery to, to sin. Paul wrote later, let us be free of everything that slows us down as we, as we follow Jesus, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. There's all kinds of things that, that can slow us down, that can have us be, be bound, contained, held back. But Jesus has set us free. He set us free from religion, that we have to earn God's love, that we have to do all the right things in order to be accepted by God. That's over with, that's done. He set us free from the power of death. Yes, we still die, but death has been redeemed. We said years ago that you know, death used to be a, a period that ended the sentence, now it's just a comma. Because Jesus showed us by dying and raising to life that there is life on the other side of death. So we don't live as slaves to the fear of death. We don't live as slaves to sin. Yes, there are things that we desire and we have urges and sometimes it's really hard to say no to those urges, but with the spirit inside of you, the Holy Spirit that lives in you when you give your faith to Jesus Christ, there's no, there's no sin that you are bound to, even if it feels that way. We've been set free, but we don't always live in freedom. We're not, we're not always good at freedom. We have to figure it out too. How can we actually experience the freedom that Jesus has won for us? How can we actually enjoy it? Freedom is meant to be enjoyed. How can we live lives where we enjoy the freedom that we have, the people of Israel, and the lessons that they're learning in the wilderness can teach us some of those things for ourselves? How do we figure out freedom? And we're gonna look at three really simple aspects of, of freedom, things you have to have to really experience true freedom in life over the next few weeks. We're gonna to look today at, at confidence, we're gonna talk about patience, and then a few weeks from now, we're gonna talk about beneficial boundaries. So confidence, patience, and beneficial boundaries. We're gonna to start today by talking about confidence. How many of you are confident in something? I don't care what it is, something. It could be that you're gonna eat a good lunch today. I don't know, you're confident. You know, like, does anyone have like a Mexican restaurant that's your Mexican restaurant? Like, I mean, most people have that. And you're, like, when you go there, you're confident. Like, you, you're like, I, I know what to expect. It's, it's, it's great, it's good. I don't care if, what it is. There, there've gotta be certain things in life that you are confident in. And we all know that confidence is super important because the opposite of confidence is intimidation. If you're not confident, you're intimidated. And intimidation is a powerful thing. So on, on Friday night, my, my, I don't know if many of you guys know this, I have a son who plays basketball. It's like a big secret. Um, I have two sons who play basketball. Judah is, he's working at it. Eli, not there yet, but it's coming. I will make them. Okay, um, you know. No, so my son's on this really good team and they had a game on, on Friday and they won. And he told me in the car, he said, I knew we were gonna win before the game even started. And I was like, oh, that's interesting, why? He said, because we heard the other boys, the boys on the other team, looking at us and saying things like, there's no way they're in the seventh grade, okay? Now, if you saw my son's team, this would make sense to you. For example, 
I'm gonna, and I'm gonna show a clip in a second, so guys hold off on that, but I'm gonna show you a nine second clip of a boy on my son's team named Tyler. And I made this, I made this video really quick for the demonstration purposes of today. I call this video, Tyler Says No, okay? Tyler Says No, here, watch it with me for nine seconds. Tyler says no. Tyler says no. Tyler says no. Okay. That's Tyler. Yeah. Tyler's a big dude. Tyler's, Tyler's a, a young teenage boy who is six foot two and weighs about 195 pounds. And he's not the biggest kid on our team. Now that would be Josh. That would be Josh. We have a picture of Josh. I'm gonna go watch Josh play this afternoon. Oh no, actually, hold on, that's Liam. I just wanna say, he can get off the ground. Like, he's got some bounce, okay? So he, he doesn't say no a whole lot, but he says hi, you know? That's him going like, hey, look at me. There you go, there you go. Okay, so the next picture is Josh. So that's Josh. So Josh is a year younger than everyone on the team. He's 12, and he is six foot five and wears a size 16 shoe, okay? So. Josh says no a lot. Josh says, Josh actually doesn't even say no half the time. He says like, don't even think about it. Just turn around and go in the other direction, okay? So on Friday, they pull up to this game and these boys, I mean, you can just tell before the game starts. They're like, it's, it's done. We're not, we don't belong here. And, and we won by 40 points, okay? It was awesome, it was so much fun, it was so much fun. You know, there, there's confidence. Like my, what, my son's team was so confident, but the other team was so intimidated. And the thing is, maybe, maybe that, I don't think that team was actually 40 points worse. I really don't, I think they were 20 points worse. But I don't think they were 40 worse. But you add some intimidation, ooh, now you're 40 points worse. Well, it's like that in life. There are so many things in life that if we go into intimidated with zero confidence, it's kind of over before it starts. Confidence is really, really important. What does it look like to have confidence as a follower of Jesus? Well, we're told in Romans chapter 15, verse 13, that God, the source of hope, hear that, the source of hope will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. How many of us today are overflowing with confident hope? You're like, I have so much confident hope, I don't know what to do with all of it. Like it's falling out of me. That's how much confident hope I'm living with. I, I doubt many of us are like, oh, that's my daily experience. So much confident hope. And it's interesting, that word hope. We use the word hope in a very different way than the Bible uses the word hope. When we use the word hope, it usually means probably not, but I hope so. Like if someone says, do you think this is gonna happen? Like, man, I hope. And that's almost always like, nope, but there's, there's hope. In scripture, the word hope is always associated with confidence. It is not, it's a long shot. It is always, no, this will happen, even if it looks like it won't. So we are meant to have confident hope because we follow Jesus. What does that actually look like practically? How do we live that out? There's three things we're gonna look at today. It's always like a list of three, I'm sorry. So it's, it's this, we've gotta be confident in God, number one. We've gotta be confident in God. We've gotta be confident in, in you. And there's a reason that's in quotation marks. You need to be confident in you. And we've gotta be confident in the future. 
Confident in God, confident in you, and confident in the future. The people of Israel, when they, when they first escaped Egypt, you would think they would have been overwhelmingly confident in God. I mean, God's done all these miracles, crazy stuff to get them out of Egypt. He, he kind of capped it off with parting an ocean, a sea for them to walk through. And, and you think that, that on the tail end of that, you're like, yeah, I will never have anything but total faith in God. There will never be a moment where I question again. There will never be a moment where I have doubt because I've seen enough. And it's funny, I've had moments in life where I've seen God do things that are, that are just inexplicable other than miraculous God intervention. I've seen that. And yet I still struggle with doubt. I still have moments where I'm like, God, are you there? The people of Israel are no different. But it happens for them really, really quickly. So one of the first things they do after they leave Egypt is they go to this mountain called Sinai. And while they're there, Moses goes up the mountain and he gets the law from God. We're gonna talk about that in a couple of weeks as we talk about beneficial boundaries. He gets the law. And here's what it says in Exodus chapter 32. When the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron, who's Moses' brother. He's like the leader. He's the babysitter. You know, Moses goes up. He's like, Aaron, don't let this get out of line. Aaron's like, I got it. And they say, Aaron, come on. Make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. So basically, Moses says, hey, I'm gonna go meet with God on the mountain. I'll be back. Just hang tight. You're good. Aaron's in charge. The people get a little antsy because Moses doesn't come back right away. And they're like, look, we don't know what happened to Moses. Aaron, you need to make us a God that we can worship and follow. And so Aaron, if you know the story, he takes all this gold that they have and he melts it down and he makes it into the image of a, of a cow and, and they worship the cow. And that's what Moses finds as he comes back down the mountain and he is not in a good mood when he sees that at all. It's a crazy intense story. But it's amazing that, that they apparently have so little confidence that just, just Moses being away, just Moses being gone, throws them into such a state of anxiety and uncertainty that they're like, we need something that we can see. We need something tangible. We need something in front of our eyes. So make us a God, even if we know it's gold. Like, we watched you make it. Like, how can you watch someone make something? And then they go, it's a God. And you're like, no, it's not. But see, the people, yeah, I think you find in this moment that maybe their faith isn't so much in God, it's in Moses. Because so far up to this point, every time a big miracle's happened, every time God's done something, Moses was right there. I mean, Moses was the one who lifted his hands up and then it happened. Moses is the one who said it, it would happen. He's the one who's led us. So even though, yes, there's this, this invisible God that's behind the scenes, we've always had this visible person that we can associate with that God. And now the visible person's gone and we don't know what to do. We need a God we can see. You just find that their confidence isn't in, in God. It's in something less than God. We always have a tendency to place our faith in something less than God. If for no other reason, then we can just see it. Whether that's another person, a job, a plan that we have in life, you name it. That's always a tendency that we fight. Is my faith really in God or is my faith in the things that I've associated with God? That's something all of us have to, to answer for ourselves. Now God in this moment course corrects, it's pretty challenging, but this keeps happening. This keeps happening with the people of Israel. Every time they find themselves in a tough situation, they're like, that's it, we're ruined. How are we gonna get out of this one? They don't go, oh, I bet God's gonna do something again. He keeps doing that. So for example, in Exodus chapter 16, it says the whole community of Israel set out from Elam and journeyed in the wilderness of Sin, which is an interesting thing, between Elam and Mount Sinai. 
They arrived there on the 15th day of the second month, one month after leaving the land of Egypt. There too, the whole community of Israel complained about Moses and Aaron. If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt. There we sat around pots filled with meat. We ate all the bread we wanted, but now you've brought us into the wilderness to starve to death. It's like if only we were back in Egypt. It would have been better to die in Egypt than to be out here. That's what they're saying. It's crazy, right, to actually look back and, and think fondly about bondage. But the thing about bondage is that at least it's predictable. You know, there have been times in my life where even though I've experienced freedom from something, whether it be an addiction or an old attitude and mindset that I knew wasn't good, or just some habit that was an unhealthy habit, there's comfort in unhealthy habits. There's comfort in addictions. There's comfort in, in negative mindsets, which is why we oftentimes find ourselves attracted to other people who share some of those negative mindsets so we can get together and complain about things for, for a while, you know? Even as things you have no control over, like, I don't know, the government. Like, you, maybe you have someone you just call and be like, the government, I'm like, I know, the government. And you hang up the phone, you're like, all right, well, I'm glad we had that conversation. I'm in a bad mood, you're in a bad mood. I have no hope, you have no hope. Can anything be done about it? No, <laughs> but we're miserable together now, right? There's something about, there's a comfort in negative attitudes, there's a comfort in addiction, there's a comfort in bad habits. And so we can actually be very much like the people of Israel, looking back and going, well, at least back then, I knew what to expect. And so they're in the wilderness, they have no food, they're like, we're gonna die. They don't even think that God might rescue them, like he's gotten them all this way just to let them starve to death. And God does something miraculous, and he actually, it, it, you may not believe it, but he causes like bread to rain from the sky every morning, and they pick it up and they eat it, and that sounds nuts, but you have about a million people who are surviving in a desert for, for 40 years, and that's a historical fact. I don't know how, I don't know what you eat in a desert with that many people. I don't have, how, cactus doesn't go that far. So they were eating something. But even then, when God gives them that, they eventually start complaining. They're like, I'm so tired of this stuff. It's like children. Like again, cookies, again. I'm so tired of cookies on ice cream. That's basically how they are. See, their, their faith, it's not, in, it's not in God. Their faith is in their circumstances. Their faith is in the people around them. They're not confident in God. And I think we find ourselves in that place a lot. And it can really be one of two things. Sometimes we struggle to be confident about whether or not God can do something. Great story about that. In Mark chapter nine, there's this boy and the Bible says he's possessed with an evil spirit, which is a crazy thing to think about. And it just says that they bring the boy to Jesus. But when the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the child into a violent convulsion and he fell to the ground, writhing and foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening? Jesus asked the boy's father. He replied, since he was a little boy. The spirit often throws him into the fire or into water trying to kill him. Please have mercy on us and help us if you can, which is an amazing thing to say to Jesus. What do you mean if I can? Jesus replied. Anything is possible if a person believes. Now, I don't know if this guy is like playing Jesus and he's really smart and he's like, I'm gonna throw in an if you can to kind of dare, like Jesus will take the bait. If I can, of course I can, let me show you. That would make this guy a genius. I don't think that's the case. I don't think Jesus can be played. No, this guy's expressing, I, I don't know if you can do this or not. I've heard, maybe it's worth a shot. So Jesus says, anything is possible if a person believes. The father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. In other words, I believe kind of. Anyone relate to that? When Jesus saw that the crowd of onlookers was growing, he rebuked the evil spirit. Listen, your spirit, you spirit that makes this boy unable to hear and speak, he said, I command you to come out of this child and never enter him again. And then the spirit screamed and threw the boy into another violent convulsion and left him. 
The boy appeared to be dead. A murmur ran through the crowd as people said he's dead, but Jesus took him by the hand and helped him to his feet and he stood up. So Jesus shows us that there's really nothing he can't do. And I, and I think sometimes we find ourselves in situations that we never thought we'd be in before. Maybe it's a, a tragedy in our family. Maybe it's a diagnosis. Maybe it's a financial situation that we just have no, we have no knowledge. We have, we have like no guideposts for. We don't know what to do. And we're like, God, can you? Can you even help me here? I don't know what to do and I, I'm not sure if you can help. And God has shown me over and over again, there's nothing he cannot do. And I do believe, by the way, if you need God to do something to show you that he can, he will. I really do believe that. I've experienced that. I know many other people who have. I think God proves himself to us. I don't have to prove him to you. I really can't, but he can. So if you need God to do something to show you that he is real, ask him and keep asking him and I believe it'll happen. But sometimes it's not that we struggle to believe that God can do something. Sometimes it's that we struggle to believe that he will. Like, I, I believe God can. I believe he can. Yeah, oh, God can do anything. I believe that. I just don't think he'll do it for me. I'm just not sure if, if, he, if he will. And, and look, on one hand, life happens. And, and Jesus never promised that life would always go perfectly smooth. Jesus never promised that. Jesus' life did not go smoothly. Like if what we're looking for is a smooth life where circumstantially everything is just wonderful, do not follow Jesus because <laughs> that's not the path he took. There are people who try to twist the teaching of scripture into this God will only allow good things to happen to you. God blesses us. Oh my goodness, God blesses us. And most of us are more blessed than, than almost any human being who's ever lived. But, but he never promises us that we'll have no problems. Sometimes it's not circumstances, sometimes it's deeper issues in our heart. And we wonder if God can or maybe will, I don't know, forgive us. Maybe you're someone, I know many people who have been like this, maybe you're someone and it's like, look, I know God has mercy and I know he forgives and he gives people second chances and third chances and fourth chances. I just feel like maybe I'm the one out of chances. Maybe I'm at the end, of, I don't know if that's for me because what I've done how I keep repeating the same mistakes over and over again, I'm just not sure if, if he will forgive me. First John 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to give us exactly what we deserve. And no, it's not what it says. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. That's a promise. So if you're ever wondering whether or not God will, not that he can, but whether or not he will for you, Scripture tells us if we draw near to him, he draws near to us, period. If we confess to him, we receive forgiveness. And that, that, by the way, doesn't mean you have to confess like constantly. His grace is, is sufficient. He forgives sin once and for all, but sometimes we need to remember that for ourselves. So we confess not that like, well, I haven't confessed since yesterday and I've done a few bad things since yesterday, so I better confess again, otherwise I'm not forgiven. That's not the way it works. But sometimes for our own peace, our own mindset, we need to just say, God, forgive me, even though we know we are forgiven, and, and just experience that, that realization of grace. We've gotta be confident in God, confident that he can do anything, and confident that he loves us so much that he will, that he will give us what we need. Sometimes, we don't know what we need. 
Sometimes we think we need delivered out of a situation and what we really need is the strength to go through it. Sometimes we need delivered out of the situation, but God knows he can and he will. So be confident in God. Number two, you've gotta be confident in you. Confident in you. And like I said, there's a reason that the you is in quotation marks because we have to understand who we are. Like you have to understand who you are. What I'm not talking about is self-confidence. There, there are certain things in life that I am very self-confident about. Not that many, but there are a few. Where, no, like honestly, I'm like, no, I got this. I'm sure we all have those things where we're just like, you're good at something, it's in your wheelhouse, you know a lot about it, so if someone comes to you, you're like, got it. But then there's other things that if you're honest, you're like, oh, I'm not confident at all about this. Like I have a daughter, I have a daughter, I have one girl, three boys and one girl, and I always joke that I'm so glad I have one girl and I'm so glad I have one girl. <laughs> because like any dads of girls in the room, like oh my, you guys, we know. Like my, my joke, is I'm always, I'm full of dad jokes now. My, my joke is that the difference between being a dad of, of boys and a dad of a girl is that I would die for my sons but I would murder someone for my daughter. <laughs> right? I haven't, but I could. I could. Like I could see it happening. I'm like, oh yeah, oh yeah. You know, my boys, if, if they're in tears or, or something, like they bump their head and I'm just, I'm like, hey guy, I'm like, I'm sorry, are you hurt? Yeah, I'm like, but you know, hey, come on, man up, you know? I'm not saying that's right. I'm not saying I'm doing the right thing. I'm just saying it's what I do, like, come on. But like Lily, I'm just like, what's wrong? What do you need? Oh, come here, come here, come here. Like it's, there's a protectiveness when you have a daughter. There's also a lot of emotions, like a lot and I don't understand them. They don't, they, don't make, they don't make sense. That's why they're emotions, they're not logic. Like I'm logic first, any logic first people, you encounter a problem, you're like, first we think about it, then we feel two weeks later, right? That's, and when you're a logic person, you know that you're a logic person if you're mad about things that happened like months ago that you weren't mad about when they happened? That's because you processed it logically and now your emotions are catching up and you're like, yeah, that was wrong. I'm angry, but in the moment you're like, it's fine. Right? That's how we are, we're logic. How many of you are emotion first people? You're like, first I feel, and I feel strongly. And, and the thing is, sometimes you feel correctly. And other people are trying to think about it logically, and you're like, that's not the point. The point is to feel bad, really bad right now. And, and, and the cool thing about being a, a, an emotion person is you get all the emotions out. And then, you know, an hour later, you're like, it's done. I've processed it, I've done, I'm done. And the logic person's not even there yet. That happens. So my daughter has all these emotions. And usually my wife is there. My daughter just starts crying and Megan's there. And I just kind of, we go play the best player on the team. And I'm like, I am ducking out of this one. You've got it, I'm with you. And Megan goes and she does this magic thing and she talks and listens and, and Lily's all better. But one time, Lily lost it and Megan wasn't home. And I was just, and I made the mistake of going, what's wrong baby girl? And what came out was 30 minutes of nonstop what seemed like completely disconnected. I mean, it's like she'd had a bad day at school, but 10 minutes later, she's like, and I don't think I'm pretty. And you know, and I'm like, did some boy say that? I'll kill, I'll kill. no, I'm good, it was all good, you know? I did go to a little thing she had in her class a couple weeks ago, and I was sizing up all the boys in her class, and I determined that none of them are good enough for her. So it's all done. I'm like, they're all third graders, you know? but they, don't, they didn't seem like 
boyfriend material. So that's good. Anyway, but like, I didn't know what to do. I'm not confident in myself when it comes to dealing with my daughter's emotions. I, I'm just like, ah, out of my depth. Someone please help. We live in a culture that values self-confidence and I would say overvalues self-confidence. You know, when, when the people of Israel go into the promised land, when they're making their way to the promised land, they're in the wilderness in this season where they're figuring out freedom. They get pretty early to the edge of the promised land. They go to Mount Sinai, they, they, they make a fake God, you know, that doesn't go well. Moses comes down, he gives them the law. They complain a lot about they don't have enough to eat and so the manna thing happens and there's some other stuff that happens as they figure out the law. They have some interesting experiences. There's some little skirmishes, but pretty early they get to the edge of the promised land, like they're there. And they say, hey, let's go, let's go check it out. Let's send 12 spies into the land to go scout it for us so they can come back and tell us what they think. And then we can, you know, go from there. And so in Numbers chapter 13, it says, after exploring the land for 40 days, the men returned to Moses, Aaron, and the whole community of Israel at Kadesh in the wilderness of Paran. They reported to the whole community what they had seen and showed them the fruit that they'd taken from the land. This was their report to Moses. We entered the land you sent us to explore. It is indeed a bountiful country, a land flowing with milk and honey. Here are the kind of fruit that it produces. But the people living there are powerful. Their towns are large and fortified. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. The Canaanites live along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and along the Jordan Valley. Caleb tried to quiet the people as, as they stood before Moses. Let's go in at once and take the land. We can certainly conquer it, but the other men who had explored the land with them disagreed. We cannot go up against them. They're stronger than we are. There's no way they're in the seventh grade. That's basically what they're saying. <laughs> so they spread this bad report about the land among the Israelites. The land we traveled through and explored will devour anyone who goes to live there. All the people we saw there were huge. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. Next to them, we felt like grasshoppers, and that's what they thought too. So needless to say, they're not ready for the promised land. They're not like, let's go. You got Caleb and, and actually Joshua as well as another guy who's like, we can do this, but the rest of them are like, there's no way. And that's what really begins their 40 years in the wilderness until they can figure out freedom, not, not circumstantially, but mentally, spiritually, emotionally, all that. They've gotta be free, they've gotta be strong. They're not confident in God. It's not self-confidence that they need, even. It's not like a one, no, no one's going in and fighting a one-on-one -on -one battle in the promised land. There's really not a lot of one-on-one -on -one battles in scripture. There's Jesus and Satan, one-on-one, -on -one, Jesus wins. The temptation story of Jesus in the wilderness. There's the story of David and Goliath, that's like the classic story. And it's easy to read that story and be like, man, David was so self-confident, but David actually wasn't self-confident at all in that story. David was confident in God, right? I won't read the whole thing, but basically, you guys don't have to put this on the screen, but he and Goliath have some words. And basically, uh, David says to Goliath, you know, today the Lord will conquer you. I'll kill you and cut off your head. This is the Lord's battle. He'll give you to us, okay? So that's not self-confidence. That's like, it's intense, but it's confidence in God. We've gotta be confident in who we are. And the key here is, is we. Like, who, who are you? And understand when I say you, I don't just mean you. I mean like you. Almost every time the word you appears in the New Testament, it's plural. Almost every time. It's y'all. It just doesn't get translated that way. Y'all is all over the New Testament. 
almost every single time. It's over 2,000 times in the New Testament. The word you is plural. We tend to read it individually, like God's just talking to me. And he does love you. He does. And y'all includes you. But so many of the promises that he makes us are not just for us individually, it's for all of us together. Like who are you really? And I would say the answer to who you are is you are the body of Christ. That's, that's an illustration we get from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27. All of you together are Christ's body. Each of you is a part of it. The illustration is that Jesus is like, he's the head, he's the one making the decisions, he's the one thinking the thoughts, and we're the ones doing the things that he equips us to do. But we are collectively the body of Christ. And here's what's so cool about that. I've been part of this body here at His Hands for 16 years. And I have encountered many situations in my life in those 16 years, a lot's happened since I was 23, I've encountered a lot of situations in life that I did not know what to do. I was not prepared. When my oldest was in the NICU for the first two weeks of his life, that was uncharted territory, I did not know what to do. So I, in and of myself, did not have any confidence. But this church was filled with people who had been there before. And I had people coming out of the woodwork praying for me and saying, hey, I was, I was there. In fact, we were in the same NICU. Do you happen to know this nurse? Do you happen to have this doctor? Let me reach out and see if, if someone I know there can come talk to you guys. And the simple truth is, where, where I individually didn't have it, we had it. I've yet to encounter a situation in my life, not one situation in my life, if it's something that I was out of my depth, don't know what to do, where there wasn't someone part of this family that I couldn't instantly think of and go, they will know exactly what to do because we're a body. And sometimes what gets us in a lot of trouble, what actually sucks confidence out of us much of the time is that we try to do everything on our own. We try to live individually. We actually try to read the Bible individually like God is telling all these things to just you, but he's not, he's talking to us. Because there's all kinds of situations that you individually aren't prepared for, can't handle, but I can't think of anything that we can't handle. We can do so much together, and we do all the time, whether it's all of us coming together for some big outreach thing and that's fun to celebrate, or when someone's life is in crisis and I watch how many people come around them to support them and all that can happen there, it's amazing. So we've gotta be confident in God, but we've gotta be confident in, in us. The people of Israel should have been confident that they collectively, the people of God with, with God in their corner could have conquered anyone, but they weren't. See, they were comparing themselves to those other people. They should have been comparing those people to God, number one. But they couldn't see yet who they were. They, they, they did not have a hard time conquering the promised land when they went into it. We'll get, that. we'll get to that in a series we're gonna call So Much Blood that comes up in just a few weeks. It's my favorite title of the series we've ever had, So Much Blood. It's that part of the Bible that you read and you just go, ugh, don't like it. Well, we gotta deal with it. But they didn't have a hard time, it wasn't a challenge. There's a few missteps here and there, but they conquered the land. It's kind of anticlimactic. It's almost like they didn't understand who they really were, and we've gotta be confident in us. You are the body of Christ. You are part of the most powerful movement that has ever existed in the history of this world. If you could only know the level of, of human power and authority that has stood against the message of Jesus in the last 2,000 years, the number of, of invincible governments and empires who have tried everything they could do to shut down the message of Jesus, 
The Roman Empire tried to snuff out the message of Jesus right away, didn't work. Christianity did not fall, Rome did. You're part of, of the biggest movement in history and it's a movement that's had lots of messiness because freedom is messy. But it's a movement that's endured because it's powerful, because it's real, because Jesus is powerful, Jesus is real. And if you'll live as the body, if you'll see yourself that you're just not some individual person, yes, that's true, but you can be so much more if you live as part of the body that there are people around you that have something to offer you and you have something to offer other people. You actually might be the one that someone in this church needs in a season in their life because you've been there before, because God gave you the wisdom in that situation. That's why it's so important for us to be connected in any way that we can so that we can be the body. So be confident in God, but be confident in you collectively. Be confident in y'all, that's what I'm trying to say. Finally, last one, be confident in the future. This is an interesting one, like confident in the future. I'm just gonna ask it. Is anybody's favorite book in the Bible, Revelation? <laughs> Not one. Oh, one, okay. Two, what's up, James, Anthony? Nice, to, James, did you know Anthony's favorite book's Revelation? You're sitting on the same row, no, one row back. Well, turn around, wave at each other. Anthony, James, James, Anthony. You guys need to hang out, be buddies. It's great. Funny thing about James, he's on our worship team. James is awesome. Uh, a few years ago, James was going on, like someone on our team was like, I'm going running with James. This is a random story. I'm sorry, James. It just made me think of it. When I looked at you, you raised your hand. You stepped into this one. Um, it's a short story, but James, I told him, I, I just lied. I just said, oh, you're going running with James? And he's like, yeah. I was like, whew, good luck. And he's like, what do you mean? I was like, oh, James, is, I think he still holds the record at Etowah High School for the fastest mile ever. And they're like, seriously? I was like, yeah, James is a runner. I'm just being goofy. And so this guy shows up thinking this about James. And I'm sure, James, you're very fast. I just, I've never seen you run. But so he goes up to James. He's like, man, I hope I can keep up with you today. And James is like, oh, you'll be fine. He's like, yeah, I know. But like, please just hold back. And James is like, oh, okay. Uh, it was great. It was great. Good times. No, very few, other than James and Anthony, other than a few weird people, no one likes the book. How many of you, it's your least favorite I don't wanna, I've tried to read it, doesn't make sense, or maybe you're like me, I'm just gonna be honest, maybe you're like me and you grew up in an era where everyone was obsessed with Revelation and it was like, is it the end times? I think it's the end times, it's gotta be the end times. A Democrat was elected president, it must be the end times. Anyone grow up in a culture like that? Okay. Dude, when I was in high school, when I was in high school, there was this period of time where there was such an obsession with, with like revelation and figuring it out. And there's all these pastors that would have like the code and all you gotta do is buy their book and the, you'll know here's how it's all gonna go down. And also you might wanna have a bunker and have a lot of rice and non-perishables and things like that. And a lot of dudes made a lot of money making a lot of people afraid. And then a lot of the things they said would happen didn't happen and no one asked any questions. It was a scandal, it it's, people should have lost their jobs. I'm half joking, but, but the thing about it is I, I used to be, I, I, I'm gonna be honest, Revelation was part, my biggest holdup to going through the entire Bible in a year was that book at the end. I've never taught on it before because I don't want to. I don't wanna because I've never felt like I understood it. 
And I've, I've encountered so many people who were so confident that they understood it so well, and almost every person I've ever encountered that was so confident that they understood it so well, clearly didn't. And I've just been like, well, I just, I don't even know if it's possible. And so as soon as we decided to do this series and committed to it, this whole Bible thing, immediately I met with, I started meeting with Fred, who's, you guys know Fred, he's great. And I was like, Fred, I gotta teach on Revelation this year. We got a whole year to prep. Can we start meeting? Help me. And, uh, <laughs> and maybe. And so, so like, and, and the first few times, and, and we've been meeting here and there, and, and uh, sometimes we talk about it, sometimes I just talk about everything going on and we, we don't get to it, but we've got a year, so it's good. I've started reading commentaries on it, I'm, like, I'm, I'm getting there, I'm like warming up to it. And the main thing that, that's been amazing for me is that I've learned that most of the time, people read Revelation entirely wrong. And I mean entirely, not that they interpret everything wrong, it's that they miss the point of it entirely. Because the point of Revelation is not to make you afraid of the future. But that's very often the result of what happens in a church culture, at least, with a hyper-fascination on the end times. Just so I'm not, am I alone? Is there anyone else who's grown up in that kind of culture where there was a hyper-fascination on the end times? And all right, so this is only about half of us. Half of us need therapy, the other half of you are fine. Um, okay, the result is that like, you're like, oh no, I hope it doesn't happen when I'm alive. Have you ever had that thought? How many of you ever had, I, I hope I'm not here when it all goes down? We are the only generation of Christians ever who have ever, who've had that thought. That has never been the way that Revelation has been interpreted in the history of our faith until a very recent time. And it might be the fact that we live in America and we have very comfortable lives and we kind of like everything to stay the same. And that's not been the way it's been for most people. What you have to understand about Revelation, and I say this, I might talk about something totally different in, in December when we're going through this because I might have learned some new things, okay? So just put this as far as like level of expertise goes to like pretty low. But as of today, I think I can say this with conviction. The point of Revelation is not, it's definitely not for anyone to be afraid. It was not to incite fear. In fact, it's the exact opposite. And the point of Revelation wasn't so that a bunch of people could try to like decode it and go, I think this is that, and I think this is that person, and not at all. See, in the Old Testament, you had the prophets, and we'll get to them. We have a series called The Voice of God. We'll get to the prophets. And the prophets were living in a time where everything was kind of like teetering on the edge. Like it could go one way or it could go the other way. It just sort of depends. Sometimes it feels like our nation is in a place like that. It's kind of always felt like that for a lot of people. But the prophets were living in a time when they had a nation, but it looked like it might be going in a, in a bad direction. And so the prophets would have this word from the Lord and they would basically give a warning saying, hey, unless you guys change, this is all gonna collapse. So, so change, and oftentimes the change didn't happen and then the collapse did. In fact, one of the reasons the prophets are even in the Bible as we know it, at their time, they were just looked at as crazy people and no one listened to them, but then everything they said came true and then years later, like maybe we should have listened to those guys. Let's preserve their teachings so that we don't make the same mistakes. Then they killed Jesus, but whatever. Um, so the, the point with the prophets was like, hey, change or else this will happen. But Revelation was, was a very specific kind of of literature, it was called apocalyptic literature. It was written almost exclusively by Jewish people in the time around Jesus. And it was a, a literature that existed for a different purpose. See, the, their world had already collapsed, it's over. They got conquered by this 
empire that got conquered by another empire and conquered and conquered and now we're conquered by Rome and we've just changed hands over and over again and there is no nation for us to preserve. There is nothing we can do right now to even be free, it's, it's, it's done. And the apocalyptic literature, which is what Revelation is, is basically saying, hey, even when it seems like the current world you live in is completely hopeless, even when it seems like the world you're in is completely and totally lost, don't worry, because one day God is going to show up and he's going to do things and he's going to usher in a new age of redemption. And so everyone reads Revelation and they all wanna read like the, the parts that make people scared, but like, here's how Revelation ends, basically. Chapter 22, the last chapter. And there's a lot of symbolism here. There's a, there's a lot of, of language in Revelation that is symbolic, but you'll get the gist of it. Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit with fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. No longer will there be a curse upon anything, for the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be written on their foreheads, and there will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun, for the Lord God will shine on them, and they will reign forever and ever. Like that's, I don't know what all that means, but it sounds nice. It definitely doesn't make me feel afraid. See, I'd say all this to say that We've, we've often grown up in a time that has taught us to always believe that the worst is going to happen. To always believe that the future is doomed, that it's all headed for destruction. And it's not just, it's not just like our faith, it's like the world we live in. There's alarmists for everything. E everything is it's gonna be the end of the world. How many movies that come out every year are about like the world ending? It's like an apocalyptic scenario or a post-apocalyptic scenario. It's so common. There's, it's almost like there's this ingrained belief inside of human beings that it's all gonna, it's all gonna end really badly. It's just a, it's a matter of what it's gonna be. And it seems like our top choices, culturally, are an asteroid, uh, global warming, or zombies. It's gonna be one of those three. We don't know which one. We're just waiting to see how it happens. But there's such an emphasis on it's gonna end and it's gonna be horrible and terrible and awful. There's no confidence in the future. Like even movies that are about the future, it's always like, a it's never a future that's gone well. It's always a future you don't wanna live in, except for that Back to the Future stuff with the hoverboard, that was pretty cool. But other than that, most future movies are like, I hope that's not the future that we live in. There's something about humanity that believes that the future is lost. And it's been that way for thousands of years. And books like Revelation were written to say, hey, even if it seems like now is lost, the future is not lost. You know why? Because God is Yahweh. We just got done learning about his name. Yahweh means the one who, who is, who was, and who is to come. So God is in the future. He is the future. God will work everything out. The Bible says it so clearly. Romans chapter eight, verse 28. We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love them and are called according to his purpose for them. He'll cause all things to work together for his ultimate purposes. So we don't have to be worried about the future. If we have a God who, who is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the one who is, who was, and who is to come. And the teaching of the Bible is not that things are gonna get worse and worse and worse and worse and when it is the worst it has ever been. Jesus is gonna come back and be like, y'all are in a lot of trouble. If that's how you grew up being taught, that, that's not... 
what Scripture teaches. There's a lot of intense language in books like Revelation because I would imagine God ripping the world out of the clutches of evil will be intense. But evil has to be defeated completely and it probably won't go down without a fight. But the future is bright and secure. And your future, your future, if you follow Jesus, your, your future includes a few certainties. One is death. Everybody dies. That's a great way to end. Worship team, you guys wanna come out? Well, come on out. <coughs> I'm, not being, I'm not trying to be a bummer. It's, it's true. It should not be a shock. At this point in human history, if that's news to you, I'm sorry. You know, some people in the Bible had to die twice. You ever think about that? Like Lazarus died twice. Got raised to life, then he had to die again. That's an interesting thing to think about. That's part of your future. The Bible says that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is living in you. And Revelation and, and so many other scriptures tell us that death has lost its power. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? That the dead will raise, that we will all, all share in the glory of Jesus Christ. That we are co-heirs with Christ, co-heirs with him, not just in his suffering, but in his glory. That's what scripture teaches us. So your future is so bright, like literally bright. It says that Jesus himself will be the light that you will like see with in the future. That's how bright your future is. Your future is Jesus and it's heaven and it's life eternal. That's a beautiful thing. So <clears throat> to wrap it up, We've gotta be confident if we want to enjoy freedom. We've gotta be confident to experience real freedom. We are figuring out freedom just like the people of Israel were and as we explore their story in the next few weeks, we'll find that freedom is tough, freedom is messy. There's a lot of things that we need to really enjoy it and experience it. But one of those things is confidence. Are you confident this morning? Now, I know a lot of people who are confident in one of these three that we're talking about. I know people who are confident in two. I actually don't know that many people, including myself, who are confident in all three, who on a daily basis are like, oh, I'm confident in God. I'm confident in who I am as part of the body of Christ, and I am so confident in the future. I don't know that many people who live that way, but that's how we're meant to live. That's how God wanted his people to, to be as they were in the wilderness. He wanted them to be confident in him, confident in who they collectively were, and confident in the future that he had for them. And they struggled to have that and it caused all kinds of mess ups and trip ups. But what if we could learn the lessons that they, they had to learn the hard way? What if we could be confident in God, confident in who we are and confident in the future that God has won for us? That is how you begin to experience and enjoy freedom. And my prayer this morning is that God fills you with confidence, with true confidence that can only come from him. And with that said, we're gonna, we're gonna take Lord's Supper as we close. We, we tend to close this way most of the time. Sometimes we mix it up, do it at different times of the service. But if you forgot to grab some bread and juice, go do it. It's in the back of the room. You're not messing anything up right now. Hmm. Anybody ever gotten a Lord's Supper cup that isn't juice anymore? Never happened to anybody? Happened to me a couple weeks ago. I was like, ooh, it's a small amount though, so it's fine. This piece of bread represents the body of Christ. His physical body that was sacrificed on the cross for us. This juice represents his blood that was shed for us to pay the price for our sin and to redeem us for all eternity. Now, 
If you were Jesus, how confident do you think you would have to be to go to the cross with at the time only a few followers, most of whom had just abandoned you? And look at that experience of torture, mockery, shame, and death and say, yeah, that's worth it. I'm gonna, keep, I'm gonna keep going. I'm gonna go through with this because I believe that Jesus at any moment in time, he believed this too. Like he even said, look, at any moment, I could call down a legion of, of angels and I'm off this thing. How confident would you have to be that the cause you've been living for is worth it to allow it to end like this? How confident was Jesus in you? That's actually an interesting thing to think about. Jesus was so confident in you, so confident that you would, would recognize who he is surrender your life to him and live connected to him, that he was willing to endure more pain than we can even imagine. He was so confident that you would respond, so confident that you would, would give yourself to him because he's given himself to you, that he did not hesitate. That once he prayed in the garden and said, Lord, is there any other way but not my will, your will? Once he prayed that prayer and said, okay, this is the way, he didn't hesitate, he didn't stop, he didn't try to escape. He gave his life because he was confident that it was worth it for you, that's powerful. And that's the kind of confidence that, that we can have. So let's, let's pray and let's thank him for this. Father, thank you for this piece of bread and for what it, what it means, what it represents, your body that has been broken for us. Lord, we love you. We thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for believing in us. We believe in you and we focus on that so much, but you had to believe in us to go through with this. You had to have some level of confidence that we would see who you are, that we would respond appropriately, Lord. And so we just wanna say that we love you, we thank you, we surrender our lives to you. Thank you, Jesus, let's take the bread. the cup. If you've already drank the cup, you're fine. But Lord, thank you for this cup, for this cup of juice and what it means, what it represents, that your blood was spilled. You gave it all. Help us give you all. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's drink the cup.